Uh, Good morning, everyone. Well, we've slowly been making our way through the book of Philippians over the last few months in a series called The Good Life. And I'm uh, sorry, I'm distracted, and so I'm just going to say it from the pulpit. I have a friend here uh, who's joined us today, and her name is Tina, and she's right at the back with Jay. So if you see a a strange face, um, please go and say hi. I'm so glad you're here with us today, Tina. Um, So we're in a series called The Good Life, and it's this idea being that Paul's instruction to this very small group of Christians living in Macedonia revealed a new way to live, a very different way to live, while they were still very much a part of a society that looked and lived very differently. Now, Philippi wasn't a a large city by any means. It was actually roughly about the size of Strathmore, um, which is quite small. And we know from reading Acts, specifically Acts 16, that there are very few Jews there, um, not even enough to warrant a synagogue. And there are even fewer Christians. Uh, In fact, by the end of Acts 16, we actually only know for sure of two households in uh, Philippi that have decided to follow Christ. Two households out of 15,000 people. And those Christians really only spent a few days with Paul and with his team. And for some of those days, he was in prison. My point being that that's actually not a ton of guidance to go off of in order to completely change the way you live. Um, I spent a a few months in Indonesia years and years ago, and um, Indonesia is a primarily Muslim country. Um, But while we were there, we had a chance to spend a week uh, on an island called Nias Island, which is a Christian island. And we were very excited because up until that point, we had been sort of, not sort of, actually undercover Christians. Um, We had to hide our Bibles in the attic of the house we were staying in. And if we did worship, it had to be in a room tucked at the back with the doors closed. It was very covert. And so uh, we were just really pumped about the idea of going to this Christian island and getting to go to church and, and actually worship with other Indonesian believers. The crazy thing was, when we got there, we were super surprised because there was way more fighting and way more criminal activity here on this Christian island than anywhere else in Indonesia that we had been. Um, One night, actually, while we were driving through the city, um, my friend that we were with, she had really long, beautiful blonde hair, and someone even attempted to grab her out of the back of the truck while we were driving. And one night, um, while we were at a Bible study, with these Indonesians, um, we asked them, you know, what do the people of Nias Island do for discipleship? Where do you find your examples in how to live this Christian life? Because they actually had no Bible in their local language. They had an Indonesian Bible, but they spoke a different language. Um, And pastors were very rare. And they said, and the answer is so bizarre, but it's 100% true, I, I, I promise. And they said, well, we have missionaries from the West that come every once in a while. And so when they're not here, um, we watch the news from the West and we watch Western TV. Um, And then she said, and she literally said this, we follow Britney Spears. (laughs) Yeah. And why wouldn't they? Because they know that the West is Christian and so they just assumed that however we were behaving over here and whatever they saw, well, that was the Christian way to live. And my point being that some, I think there's something to that. I think that sometimes when it comes to following Christ, 
Not everyone knows about or agrees what that should look like or has the same amount of exposure or has the same perspective and the same amount of teaching. Add to that that we are surrounded by a society that lives and looks very differently and there's always going to be mixing and mingling of perspectives. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Paul visited the city of Philippi. And to this day, what it looks like to truly live as a disciple of Christ can sometimes seem clear as mud. Whether it's new Christians trailblazing like those in Philippi who had no idea what it looked like because they were it. They were the very first Christians in that place. Um, Or those of us here in the Christian West. In North America where we have Christian colleges and, and Christian radio stations we still don't all see things the same way. Case in point, Billy Graham loved Jesus, and Kanye West loves Jesus, and Donald Trump has the support of hundreds and thousands of evangelical Christians. And those are all very different people with very different perspectives, and they see things very differently. If I say the words... My voice is shaking because I'm about to do this. I'm going to do this. Makes my point. If I say tough words, controversial words like abortion or death penalty or even alcohol, there are different perspectives on all of those things, even in this room. And yet, as sure as I am that there are different perspectives on those issues in this room, I am just as sure, more sure, that we all pray and that we all read our Bibles and we all seek the voice of God and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we do with that? Well, now that my heart rate is up because I just said those words in church, and now that your heart rate is up because I just said those words in church, let me make my point. There is bound to be debate over who's right and who's wrong and what's right and what's wrong when there are different personalities involved. Whether it's about following Christ or within a marriage context or a friendship or a relationship with a coworker. And whenever there is confusion and debate, there is almost certainly bound to be conflict. Conflict being defined as to be different, opposed or contradictory, to fail to be in agreement or accord. And so it's really no surprise that when writing to this young church in Philippi, trying, uh, who, who is trying to sort out what it looks like to live in this totally different way, that Paul wrote to these baby Christians and reminded them who they are and whose they are, as Dr. Rob covered for us last week, that they were citizens of the kingdom. And then right from that he dives into dealing with conflict in Philippians 4. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, in my personal opinion, whatever has gone on here between these two is a pretty big deal, because someone actually felt the need to write to Paul and tell him about it. And in response to that, Paul says, I urge you to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Now, he did not say be of the same mind. And I looked, and there's not a single translation that I could find that said be of the same mind. And he doesn't say be of the same mind as one another. He says be of the same mind in the Lord. See, conflict will come. It will. You will not always be of the same mind as those around you. Regardless of whether you're new in your faith or whether you've been on this journey for years, you will not always get it right. And even if you think you're right or you know you're right, (laughs) because some of us are always right, like me, someone will still think you're wrong. We will not always agree with everyone. In other words, we will not always be of the same mind as everyone else. And so when I read these verses, I have to assume that Paul is urging us towards something deeper. What does it mean to be of the same mind in the Lord? And here is where I propose that we draw the distinction. The pursuit of being of the same mind as one another, I actually think looks like peacekeeping. And the pursuit of being of the same mind in the Lord, I believe, looks like peacemaking. Matthew 5, 9 said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. See, as a society, we are actually very familiar with the idea of peacekeeping. There are 14 different peacekeeping operations today, three of which are in South Sudan. I have huge respect for men and women of the UN's peacekeeping operations. But the prospect of trying to keep peace where it does not exist, that's a daunting assignment. And biblically, keeping the peace, I don't believe is actually what we are called to. Because he said, blessed are the peacemakers. So let's unpack this. What does that look like? Well, in society, we define peace by whether or not there's a war going on. So peace, Webster's Dictionary says that peace is a state of being without civil disturbance. Biblically, though, the idea of peace is actually so much deeper than that. It means shalom. And it's this idea of being made whole. As in a stone having a smooth, unbroken surface, or a stone wall not having any gaps in it. Um, There's uh, an organization called The Bible Project, uh, which I love, and um, it's a great learning resource. And there's an awesome word study on the uh, word shalom, which, which really dives into this. So while as a society, we have some understanding of what peacekeeping is, what we actually don't talk about is what peacemakers, what peacemaking looks like, and how it's different. And so that's where I want to land for today. Because this idea of standing together in unity, as Paul is calling for in the early church, um, and is calling us to, God is calling us to today, I don't actually think that it looks like always agreeing and seeing things the same way. Because it's not realistic. I think instead, unity in the Lord means keeping our eyes on the kingdom of God as we move through the conflicts that will undoubtedly arise. Now, conflict has a tendency to bring out a fight-or-flight reaction in us, right? A disagreement comes up, um, an issue where there are strong perspectives. I feel strongly about something, you feel strongly about something, and then suddenly there's an urge to fight about it, to fight to be right, or for some of us to run away from it in order to avoid getting hurt or hurting others. 
And these reactions exist, but the thing is that Jesus encounters conflict constantly, constantly. He felt things very strongly, and yet he does neither of these things. I mean, he would sooner be on the receiving end of violence rather than be the one offering it. That's pretty clear. But he also doesn't walk away from conflict either. He moves right to the center of it. But instead of fighting with fists or with guns, he fights with a cross. So what does that look like for us? To work towards making peace. What does it look like for us to be of the same mind in the Lord? What does it look like to not avoid conflict at all costs, but rather to see conflict for what it is, an opportunity to grow? Now, I'm about to say something that you might have a conflicting opinion about. Conflict is not sin. Conflict in and of itself is, is not bad, and this is something that the church um, doesn't really do well with. But if we look at the biblical narrative and we see stories like Barnabas and Paul who had a disagreement so deep that they parted company and went to totally different countries. And we see people like, well, Jesus and Peter and their conflict. I mean, he said, get behind me, Satan. They are not of the same mind in that moment. We have to acknowledge that there's disagreement Different people have different histories and different upbringings, which lends itself to different perspectives. And we were created as individuals with different passions. People are bound to see things differently. Just like I have glasses and without glasses, I see things differently than someone who doesn't have glasses. Now, if you are in a relationship with someone and you don't have conflict... Um, not because you get along so well and, and you, you just see things all the same, but because there's a tiptoeing around issues, or maybe you're not willing to, or you don't feel safe or free to say what you mean and mean what you say, then peace is not being made there. A fake sense of peace is being kept. And if we aren't willing to fight for what matters to us, then it suggests that what we care about is not actually worth fighting for. Surrender and peace are not the same thing. And if you are in this position, I suggest that maybe it's not about a white flag, but it's about a red flag. There's a red flag that's raised. Um, I grew up in a, a pretty unstable home, uh, and my house was always messy. Um, and I tried, um, as an as a adolescent, as a teen, I tried really hard to keep it clean. Um, but I also worked two jobs when I was in high school and I went to school. And one day I invited a friend to come over, um, but I had to work uh, beforehand. And so I asked my mom if she could please do the dishes. And I know that that statement um, probably gives a lot of insight into my childhood, but it's what happened. And when I came home, the kitchen looked really good. Um, it looked fine, there was no dishes out, and, and I really thought nothing of it. I, I was really happy uh, to not feel embarrassed by the state of my house. But then my friend and I went to go and make frozen pizza. And it's sad that this is a true story. And when I opened the oven to put the pizza in, I discovered that it was full. It was full of dirty dishes. And we had had the oven preheating. And as hard as it is to come to terms with this, I do believe that this is what peacekeeping does to our relationships. It presents a facade. Maintaining a calm on the surface, it's peaceful on the outside 
because I'm choosing not to fight against you, but on the inside, the thoughts and the feelings are still the same. And that's where resentment grows. And if you picture this stove in your mind filled with dirty dishes and now with melted pot handles and baked on food, that is nothing compared to the internal state, the damage that comes from holding on to resentment inside. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If there is conflict, then true peace is not something that can be kept because it doesn't exist. It has to be made. So what are the tools that we need in order to choose reconciliation instead of revenge? What are the tools that we need in order to, to fight not to win, but to fight to heal? What does it look like to be of the same mind in the Lord? Well, there's an author, John Huckins, and he wrote a book called Mending the Divides. Um, John Huckins is also um, the leader of the Global Immersion Global immersion, and now I'm blanking on it, and I should have written it down, but he's a fantastic international peacemaker, and he speaks on it. Um, he does a lot of work um, in, in teaching Christians about what it looks like to, to make peace with um, those primarily in Muslim countries. And he outlines four steps to becoming an everyday peacemaker in this book. Four steps to moving through conflict and finding unity in Christ on the other side. Now, before we begin going through these steps, I think it would actually be really helpful, it's a little, a little scary, but for each of us to bring to mind a conflict that we are struggling with right now. Maybe it's an ongoing situation with a spouse. Maybe it's an issue with a coworker. Maybe um, something has come up um, in the relationship between you and your children or you with your parents. Let's bring to mind something that's going on in our lives, and we'll look at these four steps suggested by John, but that are very much lived out by Jesus. And those four steps are see, immerse, contend, and restore. Um, I worked on the ambulance uh, for a lot of years, and one time I was sitting in an emergency room in Edmonton um, with a patient, and we were just waiting for a bed, and a crew came in. And that crew uh, came in with a man sitting up on a stretcher. Um, he wasn't really belted in. This man was a bit aggressive. Um, he, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, per, you know, perceptions about him. He was acting like he might be intoxicated. You know, he was a First Nations man. He looked like he had been living rough. And the crew came in and said, yeah, we picked him up at a bar, and he had been in a fight. Um, so we brought him here. And there was, there was a wound on his head, and, and uh, there was some blood and stuff. And from our perspective, what, what we saw was actually something very different. What that crew saw was a man who, who, was, alter, who was drunk, um, who had been in a fight, and, and possibly, as is sometimes a perception on the ambulance, was looking for a free sandwich at the hospital. What we saw was a man with a head, with a head bleed um, who was acting altered. And, and we discussed this among ourselves, and as we literally, as we got up to go over and suggest to the crew that maybe something else was going on, uh, that man vomited, he seized, and he became unresponsive because he had a severe head injury. My point being that sometimes when we see people, we don't see people. Sometimes seeing people means removing the lenses that distort how we view children of God, regardless of their race, regardless of their sex, regardless of their religion, their behavior, or their addictions. Seeing people in the Lord means seeing them as he sees them. 
It's not just seeing their action or their behavior, but seeing the person, the wounds, and the history behind it. I think Jesus saw all of the wrong people all of the time, but he saw them in a way that gave them their humanity back. He saw their divine image as a child of God. Jesus saw the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He saw his executioners in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He saw that there was more to the story than what was right in front of him. And I am not saying that we need to welcome harmful or toxic people into your personal space with open arms. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm suggesting that healing comes from seeing the whole picture. Standing firm in the Lord means praying that God would remove any film and disease and brokenness from our eyes so that we can see the situation and the people within it with God's eyes. The next step is to immerse. Immerse yourself. And we see this one so clearly in the life of Jesus. Because death on the cross was only possible, this ultimate peacemaking act, because there was first a birth. I mean, Jesus didn't come down for a weekend trip. He came as an infant, nine months in the womb, 30 years spent walking among us, completely vulnerable and completely exposed. God immersed himself in our situation in order to bring healing, and he calls us to do the same. Uh, Stephen Covey, another author that I am a huge fan of, wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And habit number five is seek first to understand and then be understood. And I believe that this is what immersion looks like. Um, As John Huckins says in his book, immersing ourselves into a conflict looks like listening longer than is comfortable. And it looks like listening not to respond, but to understand. If I'm dealing with a conflict and I find myself avoiding a person or a home or a situation because there's conflict, I am never going to be close enough to that problem, to that person, to be able to work towards a solution. And similarly, if I'm willing to talk to everyone else about what's going on, but instead of the one with whom my conflict is with, then I am not immersing myself. I'm going outside and that is not helpful. Again, disclaimer here, um, I don't mean abuse. I'm not suggesting that we, we press in and we immerse ourselves in abusive situations. I mean conflict, and those are different things. And Stephen Covey, when writing about this, um, when writing about seeking first to understand them and be understood, talked about how doctors much, must diagnose before prescribing, and that this process of diagnosing looks like listening, and then listening some more, and then asking questions, and then listening again, and getting a clear picture of what it looks like is going on before it's at all possible to work towards healing. And I think similarly, not hearing the whole story before you try to remedy a situation often ends as poorly as a wrongly prescribed treatment or medication, which can in fact be disastrous. We must immerse ourselves in the situation. We must endeavor to listen longer than we want to and listen to understand. Next is to contend, specifically contend for the kingdom. 
Now, contend means striving or fighting for something, to struggle in opposition. And if you have a tendency towards the flight, end of fight or flight, then this is a really, this is a really tricky thing to come to terms with. Uh, in the verse, uh, Philippians 4, verse 2, Paul says, I plead with you, Diane, I plead with Syntyche, plead with Syntyche, sorry, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he says, yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Contend in the cause of the gospel. In other words, contend for the kingdom and see God's will prevail. And I think in order to do this and do this well, we must first ask a few questions. Who or what is it that we are fighting against? And what would a kingdom win look like at the end of it? So am I really fighting against a person or a differing perspective, or am I fighting against something deeper or darker? Because we must remember that we do have an enemy, an adversary, a thief who comes to steal, steal and kill and destroy. Satan is always at work, especially within conflict. Or perhaps what I'm fighting against is a long-standing wound that I carry from my own life, um, I heard this amazing quote, and I couldn't find the source, so I don't know, I don't think I made it up, um, but it says, we create enemies because we haven't confronted the enemy in ourselves. What is it that we're fighting against, truly? And then what does contending in the gospel look like? I mean, Jesus came to fight, not to win, but to heal, and not with fists, but with a cross. Not with angry words and the cold shoulder, but with his very life. And it doesn't always look the same. For each one of us, fighting for healing doesn't look the same. And it doesn't necessarily look the way we want it to either. Fighting for healing might look like giving that person who hurt you some space. Contending in the cause of the gospel might look like being honest with someone about their addiction. It might even look like refusing to be someone's enemy and loving them despite their best efforts. I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all formula when it comes to the fight for healing. And this one is so important, above all else, to press into the Lord and seek his will. Contend, fight for kingdom and for healing. And finally, we are called to restore, to repair. And there's two points that I want to make when it comes to the journey of restoration. The first is this, that our definition of restoration is not the same as God's. If I'm honest, there's no way I would have chosen the cross. If it were up to me, I couldn't have done that. And so at some point, we have to reconcile we have to acknowledge, sorry, that the one who came to reconcile himself to the world is fully capable of reconciling us to one another. But we have to trust him. We have to trust that he knows what that looks like and that he has a plan, even if it doesn't look the way we want it to. And this is something that I am wrestling with in my own life because I have very clear ideas of what I want restoration to look like in relationships in my life, and it doesn't but I trust the one who reconciled me to him with himself, and I believe that he knows what he's doing. 
And then there's the fact that, that Jesus, it didn't look the way, it, not only does it not look the way we want it to look, but, but that the Jews themselves, Jesus didn't come looking the way they wanted him to look either. They didn't want a baby, they wanted a king. You know, and then Jesus' disciples, didn't, they didn't want the cross. They wanted him to rise up and take names. And it looks different. It looks different. And the second point is this, that we must play a key role in restoration. We are invited to be a resurrection people and to make real what was done on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 to 21, Paul reminds us that we are, in fact, new creations, and we have been restored to relationship, and we have been entrusted, entrusted as agents. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new has come, the old has gone. The new is here. All this from God is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not pe counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Conflict will come, and with it, so will an opportunity to grow. I have a mantra that I, I, if you've worked with me in any capacity, I say this all the time, conflict breeds intimacy. If you know that you can get through something and come out of it the other side, you will be closer. And you will have grown, and you will have stretched, and you will understand that person in a totally new and different and beautiful way. Conflict will come because people are people, and people are different, and people are broken, and people are passionate, and we care about things that are worth fighting for. I want to go back to the idea of see and contend for a second, because part of seeing the whole picture and part of fighting for healing is recognizing and being honest with your own perspective and fighting for what matters to you. It's not just about seeing the other person's side, but do you see, like truly see your side of it as well and acknowledge that? Is it worth fighting for? Fighting to heal? Part of contending for kingdom is fighting for what God has placed on your heart and trusting that peace can still be made and growth can still come even if you are honest. Peace is something to be made. Through seeing any situation, through seeing the situation we're in, through seeing the hard stuff, the mess in front of us, seeing it the way God sees it, not with filters from society and not with past experiences or past hurts, not with what the world says, but with what God says about who that person is. Peace comes from immersing ourselves and listening longer than we want to, listening longer than is comfortable to. And peace comes by contending for the kingdom, fighting to heal rather than to win. And finally, peace comes through being agents of restoration and reconciliation, through representing Christ, even if it doesn't look the way we want it to. God, first of all, um, I just thank you and I praise you um, that you will always meet us where we are, but you will not leave us there. And that that looks like, the very act of that looks like emptying that stove and washing those dishes. That you are not 
willing to just keep this facade of peace up because you know it's not real, but rather you are willing to go to the depths with us and fight for healing. God, that you desire peace in each one of us, not a peace that just looks like calm on the surface but crazy underneath, but a peace that looks like wholeness. God, you long to make us whole. And so, Father, as we wrestle through this, as we wrestle through some of the hard stuff, as we wrestle through conflicting perspectives and and situations that are really hard and really messy, would you meet us there? God, I pray for bravery, that we would be willing to acknowledge and see where we come from and our own perspectives, but also that we would be willing to go in and see the other person as you see them. God, I pray for bravery again as we choose to immerse ourselves into the conflict, going right to the center of it as you did and as you do in us. God, that's a hard and scary thing. Father, would you be with us as we contend for the kingdom, as we choose to fight to heal, uh, not fighting to win and not running from it, but to seek wholeness and to seek peace between each other and also with you. And Lord, would you walk with us and hold our hand and be with us as we pursue restoration, as we pursue reconciliation with you and also with others, and as we pursue reconciliation of humanity as we pursue restoring right relationship between you and your children, God, um, would we take that job seriously? Lord, you've called us to do big things. You've called us to do hard things, scary things, um, and we don't have to do any of it alone. You are with us every step of the way, no matter what's going on, no matter if we're scared or if we're mad or whatever that looks like, Lord, you are always with us and you won't leave us. Thank you, Father. Amen.